one more sleep and it's summertime and today my penultimate program for the year it's Jan Bartlett and it's 3CRs Tuesday home time plenty of information on a range of issues the recent elections in Venezuela with Red Fuentes the dangers of human genetic engineering with Bob Phelps part two of the webinar launching the appeal for Palestinian women farmers a new push for deep sea mining, particularly in the Pacific, with Natalie Lowry. Further areas of concern for the people of the Philippines, with human rights advocate Peter Murphy. But let's first hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when it was dominated by faith. For instance, to celebrate the non-commitments made in Glasgow just a week earlier, we must put our faith in the giant fossils like Woodside with pollution to solve climate change, if there is such a thing, lead the transformation to zero emissions without cutting our emissions by announcing the biggest gas project in the country, which must be good for the environment because the Socialist Party fossil person Madeleine King hit the environment, said the Socialist Party agreed with the coalition government and Woodside with that launching the biggest natural gas project in the country was a major step towards zero emissions and the transformation away from fossils like, well, like, like gas, which is probably true seeing its proponents assured us that when we reach zero emissions, we will also be pouring as much coal and gas and methane into planet Earth as we are now. 2050 and beyond, they said, so there's relief for those of us who have lost sleep worrying about the impact of this climate change if there is business on the fortunes of the great fossil behemoths and therefore on all of us. Because thankfully, zero emissions does not mean zero emissions, but it does mean we'll have to plant a tree or two in Bali or Sumatra or the odd Pacific Island, as long as those places are still protruding from the briny. Perhaps that tree will be the last we see of them as they disappear. Which brings us to having faith in Big Supremo Scuttle Them More Lash Son, a.k.a. Scummo, and the Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, as they attempt to maintain the peace by telling us we have to invade evil, evil China. Like a chihuahua taking on a Rottweiler with only one possible result. And we have to defend Taiwan, and thus we send train killers and paramilitary... Uh, sorry, I mean forces of law and order, to take on the people of our Solomon Island neighbour who want their government to recognise Taiwan as our trained killers defend their government's recognition of evil, evil China and scuttle them said, we're not interfering in their political affairs and all that requires a hell of a lot of faith in scuttle them and Constable Duffer. And scuttle them said, we're sending in the train killers, but not interfering because we care for the members of our Pacific family. So drowning them is obviously a person of faith practice of tough love. And Constable Duffer attacked the Socialist Party and its shadow minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, petty left wing, who despite being highly critical of evil, evil China, was sadly not being highly critical enough. Indeed, we need over Peach Chihuahua ambitions that maybe we shouldn't talk war or he, every time Pete opens his mouth and, and then scuttle them, introduce legislation to make it compulsory to love thy person of faith neighbour. 
legislation arising from people of faith being a bit upset that people of non-faith challenge their right to attack evil sinners like those who don't believe marriage is limited to being between a man and a woman who can then produce dear little children created in the image of the dear baby Jesus. And Scuttle then said, the basis of people of faith is love, and is love thy neighbour. So non-faith pagans must love people of faith, and people of faith must love everybody. Unless that everybody is a same-sex person, or a, or a socialist, or a communist, or, or an evil, evil trade unionist, or a no-proper-papers-queue-jumping-illegal-boat person, or maybe even a person of faith who doesn't conform to her or his version of faith. Well, there's lots of exceptions, and we must have legislation to protect the rights of people of faith to hate those people and express that hatred. Oh, but in a non-discriminatory way. Scuttle then said, Religion and faith is about humility and vulnerability. It is about love. It is about speaking the truth in love. It recognizes the dignity and sanctity of every single human being. Uh, like no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people or evil trade unionists and lazy avarices workers, scummo? Sorry, it, it's very difficult to display the asterisk when you're speaking. The, the asterisk will appear in the written Hansard version. Not sure about the humility bit, but we reckon he must be feeling the vulnerability bit right now. And he is a living Christian person of faith exemplar of the speaking the truth in love bit, which makes it so surprising that some people, and we're certainly not included in their number, listener, have the silly impression that our big supremo is a liar. Aren't they aware this man is a committed person of faith? The silly impression coming from poor Scummo having to correct critics who quote what he says, forced to explain he didn't say what he said. People are so unfair, Scummo, like when you deny you said what you said, they produce a grab of you saying what you say you didn't say. And I most certainly didn't say what they persist in showing me saying. It's a Socialist Party plot to cover the fact that under a Socialist government, true blue Aussies will not be able to afford to live, won't be able to put food on the table for their dear little children created in the image of the dear baby Jesus. And you said you're not a liar. I did not say that I... Oh, not a liar? Oh, yes, yes, I said that, and that's not a word of a lie. You said you had to introduce the Persons of Faith Bill because you had promised it back back uh, when Persons of Faith were having fits about sinful, sinful same-sex marriage. Oh, yes, as a man of faith, I keep my promises. So now you will personally introduce the Federal Integrity Commission Bill, which you promised about the turn of the century, give or take? This drew his love for Troubler Wazzy and all things Troubler Wazzy out of Scummo. Kangaroo Court! Kangaroo Court! He screamed. Uh, was that a yes or a no? Yes, it was a no. I will not be part of a kangaroo court. Why do you say that? For God's sake, it could get us. But only if you do something wrong, something corrupt. For God's sake, it could get us. 
Some people might also have the silly impression that I don't have great regard for the Deputy Big Supremo's brain power. But, well, it's not so silly because I don't. But what else can I, we think, when Barnacle gives us so much classic ammunition? Like after he appointed a mate of his this week to chair infrastructure Trublawasi, former Tamworth Mayor Cole Murray, who describes himself as a Barnacle backer, the Socialist Party suggested there might have been the odd better qualified person for the job. Barnacle stunningly incisive riposte to that criticism, direct quote, What would you have said about Chifley? That his train wasn't big enough? What is it? What has happened to the Socialist Party? <laughs> no, no, listen, I've got absolutely no idea either what he was saying or even what he was trying to say. Well, we know what he was saying verbatim, but we've got no idea what it meant. He made Boris Johnson's oratorical disaster look coherent. Given the government's assertion that energy costs would soar as renewables grew, stunned that the Trublowasi Energy Market Commission reckons household energy bills will fall over the next three years as electricity costs plummet due to the rapid growth of renewables. And right on cue, our Minister for Fossils, Owen Emissions Reduction, Angus Tailings, claimed all the credit. Household bills had decreased under the caring business class, Hayseed and Sheepshit Party's government, and of course had increased under the previous Socialist government. But Angus, you've told us renewables would increase prices, couldn't survive without government subsidies, unlike Old King Cole, which struggles along without any subsidies, forced to exist and expand as part of the transition on just a few trillion in corporate welfare. And that corporate welfare, and you're right, it is not subsidies, ensures the lights stay on and the people's jobs are safe when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. This is the can-do capitalism, the true blue Aussie way of reducing household bills, which only a coalition government can do. A can-do true blue Aussie capitalist government. Exactly. There is concern that the holy people of faith season will be destroyed because the real reason for Christmas, the real meaning of Christmas, totally unrestrained, out-of-control consumerism, will be destroyed by evil, evil unions holding up those items on the waterfront we can't live without. And evil, greedy delivery drivers' refusal to deliver those that do make it onto terra firma. As the telly pointed out the other night, all these drivers were on strike. It said that. Delivery drivers on strike. As it explained, they'd been locked out by their caring employer. A hundred percent the fault of the evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers who must have deserved to be locked out. Well, they kept carrying on that their caring employer wasn't taking negotiations seriously and wanted to slash wages and conditions. As if a caring employer would treat workers like that. And then, because their caring employer had locked them out, the workers were on strike, compounding their irresponsibility. Leaving us to ponder how badly evil unions and uncaring workers must have treated the caring employer, fed Hexon workers, for the fed Hexon to be forced to lock them out. So finally, as we stare at empty shelves, as we wave money we can't spend and so desperately want to hand over to the great retailers without whom there wouldn't be Christmas, we know who to blame, don't we? Good afternoon. And a good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. 
On Thursday, December the 2nd, join the Rally for All Life and Habitat, led by Blinky the Spectacular Smoking Koala. Bring your banner for this family-friendly, non-arrestable action, co-hosted by Extinction Rebellion and community groups. Business as usual logs state forests, driving extinction and climate collapse. Healthy ecosystems are vital for sustaining all life, so we demand urgent, strong forest protection now. See you 5.30pm, Thursday 2nd of December at Melbourne Museum. A 3CR supporter. In the recent mega Venezuelan elections, the ruling party of President Nicolas Maduro, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, the PSUV, won in a landslide. Getting more votes in 20 of the 23 states and the capital. In addition, voting for 335 mayors, 253 legislators and 2,471 councillors, and there were over 60,000 candidates altogether. I'm speaking with author, journalist and activist Fred Fuentes, and Fred, these elections were different from previous ones. The right-wing opposition parties agreed to participate. Why did they, and how will you assess the results? Okay, well, yeah, look, to put the, the decision of the opposition to participate in these elections in context, uh, we really have to look back at uh, what has been the main strategy of the opposition for about the last four to five years. And that is, essentially, uh, once the opposition won the National Assembly elections uh, in 2015, uh, after a, a long period of using election campaigns to build up their support, the more radical wing of the movement decided that now was their time to really go for the jugular and, and try to remove uh, President Maduro from power. Since that time, they've really aimed to use uh, violent street protests, uh, military coups, power, paramilitary interventions, uh, campaigning internationally to impose sanctions and blockades on, on Venezuela. These sort of uh, extra... Uh, electoral tactics, uh, going to the point of it, essentially uh, pronouncing uh, Juan Guaido, the, the head of the old National Assembly, uh, as, the de, as the de facto president of Venezuela and thereby setting up or attempting to set up a parallel government. So all of these sort of essentially insurrectionary tactics over that period of time failed to garner any, any real momentum, certainly in terms of uh, you know, bringing the, the Maduro government down. As a result of that, that more radical wing of the opposition has been isolated. And those voices that throughout those years uh, had been urging the opposition to maintain the course that had worked for them up until 2015 of combining electoral strategy, running in the elections with organising in communities to build up a majority support, uh, essentially sort of were able to, to, to win the argument, to win the day as, as the more radical wing was defeated. I would add to that, of course, has been the government's constant emphasis on dialogue um, and seeking to bring the more moderate wings of the opposition uh, back into the fold. So as part of the negotiations, for instance, they re restructured or, or certainly um, reappointed the heads of the National Electoral Council. Uh, that's saying the opposition had always questioned, saying that it was dominated by 
uh, those sympathetic to the government. Uh, this time around, it was basically a two, two sort of, uh, if you want to say, aligned with the government, two aligned with the opposition, and an independent arbiter that, that sat on sat on the on the council. The government has also seek to work with those. The Zone governments also seek to work with those governments overseas, in particular Norway, who have been uh, willing to offer themselves as facilitators uh, for dialogue and negotiation. And as a result of that, we saw more international observers. In previous elections, other countries had refused to send observers, uh, simply announcing the elections as, as illegitimate without, even before that a vote was cast. But this time, many of them went to the country to, to see that. So that's, that's, that's the background. It's, it's the failure of the, the more far-right radical pro-insurrectional wing of the opposition uh, to carry out its, its, its aim of removing Maduro. And so a, a return back to the more moderate opposition uh, that, that's seeking to, to run elections. How did they fare in these elections? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, if we look at it purely in terms of the, the numbers of people elected, not very well. I mean, they, they in, you know, in, in, in the terms of at local councils and mayors, they increased their numbers. But yeah, when we look at over, overall, we look at, say, for instance, the governorships. It's expect, I think there's one that still, I uh, haven't seen the last numbers, there's one that's possibly still in dispute, but the government won about 20 of them, uh, whereas the opposition have only won three. So if we look at on purely those numbers, you'd say, well, they didn't fare very well. But I think that probably hides something of the real story as to how the opposition were probably a little bit more successful than what those numbers indicate and the government a little bit less successful. And that is in, a bit, in about half of those um, seats that the government uh, won that the United Socialist Party Venezuela candidate was elected. Uh, they actually obtained less than 50% of the vote. Uh, so that is because of divisions in the opposition. Uh, it's quite likely that that's what has cost the, the opposition winning, you know, uh, somewhere between another 8 to 12 governorships. Uh, add to that, that um, even though the level of voting was, you know, perhaps uh, not a huge increase on, on, on previous years, although it was a bit of an increase, the, the nature of that vote has changed. So whereas in previous ones where the opposition boycotted, you know, overwhelmingly the vote was for uh, the United Social Party of Venezuela. This time, because of increased opposition participation, it's, it's sort of masked the fact that actually less voters for the socialists uh, turned up this time around than did in the previous election. So there's, there's certainly some warning signs there if we look at it at the, at the vote level. But as I said, in terms of the results, I think the opposition will, will be ruining the fact that they didn't unite a bit better in some key states uh, where they possibly that could have tipped the result in their favour. Juan Guado, what role did he play? He's essentially been very sidelined in this whole process, uh, of course, because he, he doesn't want to give up his position as the, you know, the so-called de facto or interim president of Venezuela. Uh, but he's also been sidelined because... Yeah, increasingly there's been more and more cases coming out of corruption, if not directly involving him, certainly involving those around him in his, in his supposed parallel government. Corruption relating to contracts that were signed with some of the companies that uh, uh, foreign governments seized because they were in uh, foreign territories. Uh, so there was one Venezuelan state-owned company, but that was in Colombia, which the Colombian government essentially handed over to, to Guaido and his cronies. In the U.S., a similar process happened with, with, with CITGO and the PDVSA, the, the state oil company affiliate there. And so a large number of corruption cases have started to emerge on those in his inner circle. So the combination of the, the real failure of his tactic to, to sort of you know, propose himself as a president and actually make that a reality, 
combined with the, the sort of scan, you know, sort of, if not daily, certainly weekly scandals that come out about uh, he, he, his, his uh, enablers, his allies' uh, involvement in corruption means that today he's, he's very much a, a marginal figure in, uh, on the Venezuelan opposition. Not, not disappeared by any stretch of the imagination, but, but certainly not, not that key central figure that he was just a few years ago. Just wondering how people see the elections in Venezuela. The figure I saw was that there were 60,000 candidates. Is that true? Yes, well, you've, you've got to remember that this was elections for governors, mayors, and also for local council. And you have about, uh, give or take, but, you know, it's 330-something, I think it was off memory, local councils. Uh, and on each local council, you, you, you know, the number varies a bit, but you're looking at nine or 12 local councillors. So when, when you add that up, you know, there, there's probably about... Uh, you know, well over a thousand positions up uh, up for election. Um, probably, you know, two thousand or something. So for each of those positions, there was obviously diff diff different candidates standing. So it gives you an indication, firstly, of the kind of um, partial fragmentation that's that's occurred uh, on both sides of politics. Like certainly, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela has done the best throughout this period of maintaining itself as as a single organizational block that runs candidates that, that at elections is is constantly the biggest political force if not the majority political force certainly the the, the one party that can uh, garner the most votes but e even even on the uh, you know, on the left side of politics uh, we saw that there was a, you know quite a range more candidates uh, either as independents or as part of the uh, uh, the revolutionary popular uh, alternative the APR you know, who identify as Chavistas or identify as socialists, uh, but were willing to contest the elections uh, standing against uh, the PCV. That, that fragmentation is even bigger in the, in the opposition, where, where you don't, you know, where a few years ago they were largely all united uh, in the Democratic Unity Roundtable, the, the, the MUD or the MUD. But, you know, even though the MUD stood in these elections, there were parties, you know, important parties in the opposition that stood outside of it and, and defeated candidates of the MUD. And then there was many others... Uh, who either opposition aligned or perhaps even identify as not being, you know, aligned with either side of, you know, of politics running. So that, that, that high number of, of candidates expresses that. And I would add another point, that the high level of abstention also um, indicates the, the ongoing sort of sense for a large number of Venezuelans uh, that neither side of politics yet really represents an alternative for them or, a, you know, a, provides, you know, coherent proposals and alternatives that they could see as solutions for their everyday problems. The, the abstention rate was, you know, give or take somewhere approaching 60%. Now, I think have got to take that with a little bit of grain of salt because, as we know, over the past few years, there's been a, a large level of migration out, out of Venezuela. You know, the numbers are hard to, to say, but we're certainly talking in, in the millions of Venezuelans that are left who, are, who would still be on that electoral roll, but obviously now living overseas um, wouldn't have participated. So, so the, the, the abstention rate is a little bit inflated in that regard. But there certainly still continues to be a, a large number of Venezuelans who, who don't feel engaged in, in, in the political process, whether it be because they're opposition, but um, you know, after years of being told that the electoral system is, is rigged, said, well, why am I going to trust you now and go and vote today? or whether it's uh, opposition people who want to go and vote for an opposition candidate but feel none of the current crop really uh, express a, a solution to them and knowing that Maduro's mandate wasn't up for election, it didn't feel the need to vote. And also those you know, supporters of the government who feel like, well, 
you know, this government's been in government for so long and, and the problems still haven't really been resolved. So we're not going to go and vote for opposition candidates, but we're also going to, we're going to express our, our sort of discontent by, by not going. Uh, so I think that the, the high number of candidates, uh, the, the abstention level, all of that sort of indicates the kind of uh, still ongoing sort of uh, real challenge to, to re-engage important sections of, of Venezuelan society into the political process. Is there a significant number of people on the left to oppose Maduro or wouldn't support him? Well, it depends on what you mean. There, there is certainly a, a current within what you'd call the left or the socialist left who, who oppose Maduro, which would go as far as, you know, uh, not voting for Maduro in, in the next elections. Uh, I, I, I'm not, you know, because the elections are, are still a while away, there's not yet any discussion whether as to whether they would put an alternate candidate. Um, uh, but I think that's, that's probably a very small small, perhaps even marginal group. I think what you probably have, though, is a much larger block of, of voters, of activists, uh, in particular activists, actually, who for many years have either been members of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela or, or certainly supporters and fellow travellers of them but never joined the party for, for X, Y or, or Z reason. Uh, but the, today feel that Maduro and his government, whilst it needs to be defended against the opposition, whilst, you know, if the opposition go for a recall referendum, which I imagine is, you know, certainly high on their agenda now that they're wanting to re-engage with the electoral road of trying to see if they can um, collect signatures again and, and push for a, a recall referendum, we'll, we'll certainly see that as a challenge to Maduro and so that, that section of activists will certainly go and campaign to, to defend Maduro's position, uh, but increasingly do so from a critical stance. And as I said, hence are willing to stand candidates for local council, for mayors, even up to for governorships. Uh, and in some cases, we're, we're able to achieve you know, 10% of the vote. Far from winning, um, but certainly reflecting a certain disgruntlement, although you know, I think perhaps that 10%, that those areas where they got the high votes, maybe is, has more to do with the, the support of the individual candidate than the support for building a new electoral formation, a new political party to, to the left of, of the Socialist Party. But... There is a sentiment amongst the activists that some things, something needs to give, something needs to change, um, and that's that's a real important part of the debates and discussions that are happening on on the Venezuelan left. But of course, always impacted upon by the actions of of the opposition. So in that sense, uh, it's, it is very positive that we've seen, you know, essentially the the, the violent wing of the opposition marginalised, because of course that that very much was a big key factor in the closing off of a lot of democratic space. I mean, it's very hard to have open discussion, debate, uh, political organising uh, when, you know, the, the, the ever-looming threat of, of coups or paramilitary interventions, not just threats, but actual attempts of coups and paramilitary interventions occur when the economy is being asphyxiated by, by the blockade. So for now, that violence has dissipated. Uh, so we hopefully that opens up some political space and that will only be further opened up if all of this sort of dialogue that's occurring with the opposition uh, and these steps that are being taken can also help to uh, convince governments to sort of start easing some of the sanctions or, in fact, lifting the sanctions uh, altogether. As of yet, though, it's, it's, that's not clear. I, I think I just read just in the last few days the European Union have ratified the, their sanctions, which are minimal compared to the United States, but not insignificant. But so today we'll ratify them for a further 12 months. And as of yet, there's not really been any noise from the United States of, of real you know, action in regards to the lifting of the sanctions there. Yeah, we've got the quote by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken saying, elections neither free or fair, harassment, 
media, censorship, etc. I understood that most of the media in Venezuela is privately owned. Yes, well, I, I mean, and this, this has been the, the, the farce for, for so long that, that, of course, I mean, you, you know, one only has to go to Venezuela, turn on the TV to see constant discussions, you know, of opposition figures uh, talking, literally having, having panels about, you know, is, is, is today the time, is, is the time right for a military coup? I mean, I can't think of any other country in the world where, you know, imagine turning on breakfast TV in Australia and you've just got a panel where people are openly discussing whether, whether this month or next month is more appropriate for a military coup and, and there being sort of, sort of zero outrage. So, so the idea that, you know, no private media exists in, in, in Venezuela is, is very farcical. That's not to say that also the, the state doesn't have its own, its own media, but of course, it, it, you know, in, in a situation like, like Venezuela where politics is so polarised, where you know, every side kind of needs, needs the opportunity to be able to, to, be able to get their voice and, and, and their message across. So I, I think you know, the US is just carrying out the same, the same tropes, the, the same arguments as always. They've said this for years and years and years. It's not been true before and it's not true today. But the real, the real key factor really is what's going to be the key influence is yeah, so as I said, there's, there's been an important shift, I think, in, in the sort of the, the, the centre of decision-making amongst the opposition. I think under Guaido, it was very much the decisions were, were being directly, you know, discussed and made in, in Washington. We saw that, the decision to appoint Guaido as a, the interim president, the decision to use that to then seize assets outside the country, uh, this ramping up of sanctions and the opposition's focus on campaigning internationally to, to step up sanctions. All that we saw in the last few years, but now what we're seeing is that, you know, it's the opposition discussing in Venezuela participation in elections, electoral alliances. It's the opposition meeting with the government, whether that be in meetings in Caracas or in Mexico, under the guidance of of Mexico and, and Norway as as facilitators. So this is important. Of course, you know, this is not to say that the U.S. isn't continuing to to meddle in Venezuelan affairs, and that it's not going to continue to do that. Uh, we know that Biden is very much interested in, in the region, certainly in the last few months, ramping up the, the discourse and, and the legislation against Nicaragua, for, for example, and, and their recent elections. So we can't rule out what, what will happen next. But um, I think you know, that, that is one positive that we could take out of these elections is that sort of return back to, to sort of uh, you know, what, what in most other countries is seen as, as normal political discourses, you know, in elections that are fought out in elections and in campaigning and in trying to present the population with, with proposals and solutions and programs for change uh, rather than seeking uh, uh, violence and, and military coups to impose a, a minority will on, on the people. What about relations with neighbouring countries, particularly countries like Colombia and Brazil? That's always been a, a big issue for certainly the, the, the border with Colombia, and I think that is going to continue to be an issue. Again, there we see the government attempting to uh, strike a chord of dialogue and negotiations with the Colombian government. But uh, as, as it's been for many years, Colombia has been tightly, tightly linked with, with the United States. That's always a, a sort of a card up its sleeve that the US has if it were to want to provoke further tensions in the region. In terms of Brazil, it's, it's a bit more complicated. Obviously, there we have the you know the far right Jair Bolsonaro government, so far from being any friend of of Venezuela. But I, I you know, really sort of the, the government itself has been distracted with its own internal crises and, and its own issues. And what we've seen is that actually the, the Venezuelan government has been playing an important role in in that border region of actually helping towns 
um, and cities in that area on the Brazilian side of the border deal with the COVID, COVID pandemic. So, you know, sort of it's, it's, a, it's a mixed sort of relationship. As I said, it's clearly one ideologically that the Brazilian government has no, you know, would, would more than willingly participate in any, any campaign to get rid of Maduro. But for, for now, he's not really seen as, as the high priority in, in the, amidst all of the, the other crises that it's facing. But then it's the people of Venezuela themselves with um, poverty, unemployment and low wages. How long are they going to accept or put up with this? Well, this is, this is the big question. You know, it, it's, it's unclear what, what happens in, in, you know, in the next period. And this is really going to be, in many ways, uh, decided by how the different political forces are actively intervening into this situation. As you said, we've got a, you know, a situation where wages have been pulverised and so now we have some of the, the cheapest labour in the region in Venezuela. We have uh, increasing poverty. Uh, we have, of course, the, the, the blockade sanctions that are having a, a, a tremendously detrimental effect on, on the economy and, and people's everyday lives. And then the response to that gets reflected in, in very different ways. Uh, uh, sporadically, it gets it, it refines its representation in, in street protests. I'm not here talking about the opposition protests, which are you know, almost exclusively around political demands, free political prisoners, um, Maduro must go, but demands around you know basic services, about wage increases, about uh, you know improvements in, in education, health, uh, about help with the COVID pandemic. So we see sporadic rises of these protests, but they don't really galvanising into any kind of coherent opposition or, or movement. We also, as I've mentioned before, see many, many Venezuelans uh, uh, leave the country uh, in, in search of, of, of a sort of alternative elsewhere. The opposition, of course, is trying to ride that wave of, of discontent uh, in, into government, uh, but as yet has not been able to, to find, you know, to, to really convince people, certainly you know, not just opposition people, but those that are uh, sceptical of both sides of politics or those that have previously supported uh, Chavez or maybe even previously supported Maduro but uh, are uncertain of, of which way. So they, they still have a task there to, to really win over that, that section of population if they are to cohere a, a kind of a electoral um, majority. Or alternatively, and it certainly can't be ruled out, is, is that, you know, we, we, we see a, a kind of a, a new, a restoration of a, of a new sort of... Um, a new Venezuela, a new hegemony, not, not one that um, it was, uh, you know, had that revolutionary impulse and dynamism um, and mobilisation of, of the previous years of Chavez, but instead one that returns to a kind of a, a two-party system or, or at least a two-political bloc system, uh, the, the pro-Chavista, the pro-United Socialist Party Venezuela bloc and the, an opposition bloc who may power share, may alternate in, in, in power, whether it be at the local level, the regional level, or, or possibly even at, at the national level, and where uh, the, the current economic situation, rather than being dealt with through the kind of measures that you know, uh, many had become to be accustomed uh, with in, in, in previously in Venezuela, of measures that aim to sort to pass the burden of the crisis on to the, onto the capitalists, to the rich, Instead, we'll seek to pass the burden on, on or, could, or, or deepen the process of passing in the burden onto the poor, making use of Venezuela's now lowest wages in the region, continuing to uh, um, uh, promote the, the extractions of, of minerals as a way of trying to make money in the country, uh, something that Venezuela currently is being forced to do uh, because of the, the inability to really operate in, 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 in the international market and on other spheres because of the blockades and sanctions. 
but it may be something that they continue to choose to do even once those sanctions and, and blockade is lifted. So it, it's unclear what's going to happen, but I, you know, the, the key challenge will be, well, what, what political force is really able to galvanise that, that large section of society that lived through the years of Chavez, knows that uh, you know, a better society is possible, in many cases was actively involved in politics, but today has been, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, disengaged, depoliticised, demoralised. Um, what, what happens with them will, will be fundamental uh, to, to the outcome of, of Venezuela in the next few years. Are the youth of Venezuela politically active? Uh, look, I, I think in, in, in many cases it's, it's the youth that are sort of being the most disengaged, uh, the most that don't really have uh, a high level of, of trust, whether that be in the government or, or even in, in the opposition. I think the youth have also probably been... Um, in some ways, the, a, a big percentage of the people that have that have left the country as well. Uh, so that's another aspect to look at, look into it. But I, I think that that's a real challenge for for both the government or the opposition of how they can seek to re-engage youth in in the political process. And that, of course, will be a, a fundamental factor, sort of changing. That's not to say that you know that youth are, are totally disengaged. Of course, you know when we saw in these elections a number of, of younger candidates, and that in, in, in part an attempt by the political parties to to try and sort of present themselves as refreshed, as new faces, as different from, from the old. But that's still a, a, an ongoing challenge uh, for, for both the government and the opposition. Finally, Fred, the situation of Alex Saab, who's been extradited to the United States. What's the latest? It's very unlikely, I, I would say, that the US is, is going to re- uh, release him. Uh, or certainly, you know, perhaps unless they're, they're thinking of keeping him as a bit of a a card up the sleeve in, in terms of, of the negotiations. I mean, you know, Saab has in, in some ways represents what, you know, the, the real challenges that, that Venezuela faces, you know, because his role was, you know, essentially, uh, you know, how can we get around this sort of complex networks of sanctions and blockade that are strangling our economy? Now, of course, that involves all sorts of dealings in, in often, play in often in, in what would be deemed as, as, as illicit dealings, um, not because of what they're doing is inherently wrong, but because the, the laws that have been imposed in the US uh, against companies and individuals uh, doing dealings with, with Venezuela make that now illegal. So I, I think it's unlikely that uh, the US is going to do release him in, 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 in any way. I think if they want their sanctions to work, then they need to make them work. And cutting off the kind of connections that, that Saab was able to have, uh, because you know, Saab had already previously uh, had, had contact you know, in Colombia and in other, in other countries. So being able to sort of cut off that little loophole is an important part of maintaining uh, that, the, the, the real restrictions of, of the sanctions regime. So I think that's going, but of course, that's going to be an ongoing point of contention in any ongoing discussion and, and negotiations. Um, we've seen that. That, you know, the Venezuelans at a certain point almost walked out, the government, sorry, walked out of the negotiations on, on the basis of, of these actions, but returned to the table. So we'll, we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. Thanks so much, Fred. No worries, thank you. I've been speaking with Fred Fuentes, author, journalist, broadcaster and activist. Tune in to Grounding Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast 
On the 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're making space to explore what disability justice has been and will be on these lands, with programming led by Black and Indigenous community members, in addition to programs by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2021. On the program next week, Bob Phelps, the director of the Junior Ethics Network, will be wrapping up the year of the work they've been doing. But as this is the last week in Parliament, we're going to hear more about human genetic engineering and the seriousness of this issue. Well, there is a bill in the federal parliament and we are hopeful that uh, it will be tipped over to next year. But uh, during this uh, last week of uh, federal government sittings, there is a, a bill in the parliament, the mitochondrial law reform bill that concerns itself with setting up experiments on human beings to, they say, prevent mitochondrial disease. Now, it's not one disease. It's actually something of the order of 250 to 300 different diseases that affect the energy production parts of human cells. Certainly, um, there is a community in Australia and elsewhere that suffers from mitochondrial diseases. But the federal government's got it into its head, driven by the uh, IVF industry and uh, the Mitochondrial Foundation, which is uh, concerned about the health and welfare of the people who have dysfunctions in their mitochondria. The mitochondria are um, a set of DNA that generates the energy in living systems. So in our organs and so on. And things can go wrong. There can be mutations. And what they're proposing is really an experiment which would aim to allow people who are suffering from mitochondria disease to um, have their own genetically related children without transmitting the disease to those children. And the problem with this at its core is that this is germline gene manipulation. It... Uh, is a process that's going to affect not only the children that might be born from the experiment and later from the clinical use of these techniques, but also their descendants. And until now, there has been a prohibition in most countries around the world to any of this kind of genetic manipulation. And yet now this uh, mitochondrial law reform bill would actually overthrow those laws which were established in 2002 after a very, very robust discussion about the importance of prohibiting changes to the human genome that could be inherited by our children and future generations, that's being overturned. And yet that's not where the discussion is. They're saying, oh, a child a week is born with mitochondrial disease. We should be trying to prevent it. Whereas some people are rightly saying, I think, that the $50 million that the government has already allocated to the research should be spent on developing cures and treatment, not only for these children, but for the others who suffer from these diseases. So there has been a debate around the mitochondrial problem itself, but there's been no public discussion about this issue of allowing heritable genome changes. The only other country in the world that allows it, and it's only being done experimentally as far as we know, is the UK. 
which changed the law there in 2015. There have been no results from those experiments at all. And the experiments that were done previously on monkeys in the USA suggest that this genetic manipulation technique will not prevent the problem because what they found in the monkeys was that in the second generation, the disease started to come back. And this is because you can't totally eliminate the transmission of the mutations simply by transferring, doing screening and transferring a nucleus into um, a new egg, which is, uh, has been tested for whether or not it's carrying the, uh, the mitochondrial problem. It is a complicated thing, but really at core, the issue is, should we be allowing children and their descendants to be born who have deliberately had their DNA genetically manipulated so that it is inherited? Germline gene manipulation, it's called. As I said, it's banned everywhere except in the UK and in the case of these experiments. The, the bill that's in the parliament at the moment is really poor legislation. It doesn't stand alone. It sidelines our main genetic regulator, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator. I think there needs to be a proper public debate and discussion about this prior to this legislation passing. And that's certainly what we've advocated to everybody. So vexed, in fact, that all of the major parties have given their MPs and senators an individual conscience vote. And we're um, advocating that those conscience votes say no to the bill. Uh, certainly at the moment, it needs to be amended. It's quite unsatisfactory as legislation. We are hopeful that uh, this being the final week of the federal parliament, that the bill will not be passed and that next year, if the House sits again before an election, we can have a much more thoroughgoing discussion of where, whether or not the proposed uh, genetic manipulations are in the public interest or not. Uh, it's a really big ethical, social, and also scientific issue because the science indicates that we're heading into serious, serious trouble and the ethics haven't been resolved either and the long-term social problems that... Uh, these proposals will create have not been discussed uh, or resolved in the public interest. So if anybody wants to know more about that, um, I'd very much like to hear from them. Uh, info at geneethics.org or they can give me a call, of course, on 0449 769 066 to engage in the discussion about uh, human genetic engineering. Get your Radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. 
To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. We now have part two of the webinar, launching the appeal for Palestinian women farmers in Gaza. To begin, Nick Rose, co-founder and executive director of Sustain. Now we're going to move into the second part of uh, the webinar, which, uh, from which you're going to hear from the uh, collaborators and supporters, the Solidarity Network that has formed to support this campaign uh, here in Melbourne. So I will speak first. For those who don't know me, uh, my name is Nick Rose. I'm the co-founder and executive director of Sustain. And in that capacity, it's been my honour and privilege to have participated in weekly meetings with Ahmed, Allah, Faten and colleagues from Gupap and UAF over the past four months. With Global Gardens of Peace, the Just Food Student Collective, EcoCare Pacific Trust and now Free Palestine Melbourne, we have worked together to develop a campaign based in the principles and the ethic of solidarity, of citizens helping each other and of building local ownership and control of food systems in the aspiration for food sovereignty, rather than greater relations of dependence through humanitarian aid. Sustain's mission is to design and build better food systems, and by that we mean food systems that are life-enhancing, not life-destroying. Our vision is of an Australia and a world in which everyone eats well at all times, no matter who they are, where they live, or how much money they have. This is a world in which our food systems nourish human health and ecological integrity. The campaign to support food sovereignty in Palestine is central to our vision, and I'm very pleased that we've been able to respond to the call for solidarity support when it was made to us. But now it's up to everyone who share this, shares this vision and who supports the goals of the campaign to support it by sharing the platforms and donating if you are able to do so. And a, a very big thank you to everyone who has uh, donated so far. Sustain is a think and do network of sustainable and healthy food systems change makers. Our program of work is broad, ambitious and growing, spanning research, policy and advocacy, consultancy and project management. Perhaps our most impactful work is the change we create on the ground through collaborative partnerships to activate underutilized spaces into places of thriving, healthy food growing and social connection. Now I'm delighted to share with you, hot off the press, the early beginnings of our latest initiative here in Melbourne, the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm. That gives you, I hope, a little glimpse into what has been possible through capable and passionate local people working together on a vacant site in just three months. And I'd ask you to imagine if we had at least one food justice farm in every suburb, in every city and every town throughout this country and globally. Then the dream of a truly happy, joyous, peaceful and just future would be very much within our grasp. It's my great pleasure to hand over to uh, Andrew Laidlaw. For those who don't know, Andrew is the president of Global Gardens of Peace, uh, an Australian charity founded by Maura Kelly in 2013. Andrew uh, is a very well-credentialed and experienced landscape architect working with the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne and has also taught for 25 years at the University of Melbourne with receiving multiple awards. I've got a brief uh, slideshow which, um, which Andrew will speak to now. So over to you, Andrew, and welcome. Thank you, Nick. As Nick's mentioned, uh, my name's Andrew Laidlaw. I'm a co-founder uh, of GGOP, Global Gardens of Peace, and we strive to build gardens and bring gardens to vulnerable communities. It's absolute um, privilege to be involved 
with Sustain and GUPAP in this campaign. Our work has taken me personally to Gaza on a number of occasions, and we are actively building a children's garden in the Gaza Strip. Uh, we believe uh, one of the, the great human rights is actually access to green space. Families and children can connect to nature, and we believe this is a, a building block to healthy humans. People in the Gaza Strip have been locked down for over 70 years, and it is unbelievably devastating to go to a place like Gaza and witness what they don't have. So our work is about bringing green space through gardens to a place like the Gaza. We also work in Melbourne and we work locally because actually there are vulnerable communities everywhere. But our work started through Moira, Moira Kelly in the Gaza Strip and we've worked with community we try to build these gardens with the local community. And you can see some of these images here. This is the current site that we're working on in Alamal. And we've actually produced a drawing. We're working with, as I mentioned, the local uh, Han Yunus uh, municipality, but we're also working with the United Nations. We are hoping to have this garden built within the next uh, 12 months. We've received funding from people within Melbourne. And I think this is going to be a wonderful celebration in Gaza. And we hope to build many more gardens in the Gaza Strip. And we have a very large plan for what we call the Garden of Hope. And these garden spaces, while this, is, this one is a smaller garden and focused on play and for children and families, our larger garden uh, has a, a whole range of opportunities for social enterprise and growing food plants, uh, orchards and things like that. So it's wonderful to be part of this campaign. Uh, I've been inspired by Ahmed. I know the situation in Gaza and we put our voice to this campaign wholeheartedly. So I encourage everybody to, uh, to get involved. Thank you. Thanks so much, Andrew, and a uh, big thank you also to Gary, uh, who's been with, with us uh, since the commencement of this uh, campaign in conversation with uh, Ahmed and, and colleagues from GUPAP. So now I'd like to invite uh, Amy Tacey and Savannah Subsky, who are the respectively Vice President and President of the newly formed Just Food Collective, uh, formed out of uh, food study students at William Anglis. And they're going to tell us a bit about their student organisation and their involvement with this campaign. So over to you, Amy and Savannah. I'm Amy and alongside Savannah, we are representing the Just Food Collective, uh, a partner of the, this campaign here in Australia. Uh, we're a student-founded not-for-profit incorporated association built from Bachelor of Food Studies students from William Anglis uh, with an aim to make active contributions and changes towards a healthy, just food system that tackles systemic inequities. Through this, we hope to promote and enhance conviviality and collective transformation between our university family, but also among our collaborators and global community. For this partnership, we began uh, this by establishing solidarity with the women um, of UAF through learning how we were going to represent and share their stories to the Australian context. And these stories will be found at sustain.org.au at the projects tab and at women-owned farms of Gaza over the course of the next six weeks of the campaign. So we were first introduced to this collaboration before Just Food had even come together as an organisation. It was something we as students were all very interested in especially as we learn about food movements and social change and the food sovereignty efforts of workers across the world. After joining in on the discussions, we found our place in the communication side of the campaign. Amy coordinated interviews and partnerships with radio stations, SBS and more across Melbourne. 
And alongside Russia and UAF, we worked out the best way to share these stories of success with our audience and turn translated interviews and transcripts into third person stories. It has been an invaluable experience with Amy and I on behalf of Just Food, so grateful to our friends in Gaza for allowing us to share their stories with Australia. It's been a very special experience uh, meeting with our friends from Goop Up in Gaza for about 15 weeks now, as Savannah said, alongside Global Gardens of Peace um, and Sustain, who we would like to thank for the opportunity to be a part of this. Thank you also to Melissa from um, Free Palestine Melbourne that has supported us to connect with the right groups and radio stations to be able to get this campaign out into the Australian context. We will be with uh, this campaign until the final wrap up in late November. And from there, we hope to begin to engage in some other projects, um, workshops in schools, uh, where we will focus on critical food studies and sustainability and also advance William Manglis as a leader in students' welfare and being food secure by producing a food mapping report. I uh, hope to continue to collaborate with the likes of Cardinia Youth Group uh, and set up projects that support the food security of our community uh, and especially uh, the youth of that. I would just now like to introduce Russia, who is um, a Palestinian-Australian who has been collaborating on the stories with Savannah and the women of UF, and just again, like to thank our friends uh, in Gaza for allowing us to uh, share your stories. Thanks so much, Amy and uh, Savannah. Um, and uh, yeah, a matter of, of great sort of personal pride to see uh, William Angler students uh, taking such um, a lead role and, and putting what you've learnt um, in your studies into practice in such a fantastic way. So, and, and for me, um, I just want to say before we begin Russia, um, you know, the whole reason uh, I think that I'm here and doing this is the uh, very moving trip that I shared with you to uh, to the West Bank, to Ramallah back in 2015. And, and thank you for, for that invitation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful to have your support and collaboration uh, in this campaign. So a very warm welcome over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. First, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, which I am based on now, the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respect to the elders past, present and emerging, and I want to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. My name is Russia. For those who don't know me, I'm Palestinian based here in Nam, also known as Melbourne. We have worked together on food sovereignty. We um, co-authored a paper and presented that in Ramallah when I was living back in Palestine. When Nick was telling me about this campaign, I felt it was important to work on the translations of the stories and support the members of Just Food putting together the stories and to ensure that the representation um, of these stories is done and shared with the Australian audience to support the campaign and raise money. So I'm going to, just for those who don't know me, just mention a couple of things that I do. Um, I'm a nutritionist and a herbalist by trade. Um, I'm also an artist and an independent researcher focusing on food anthropology and food sovereignty. I'm also the founder of Betishai Tea House, which is currently an online tea house because of COVID. I'm really interested in preserving culture and preserving stories and also preserving Palestinian herbalism and traditional Arabic medicine practices. That's a little bit about me. Um, I also want to share one of the stories that I had the pleasure to translate and interview Hanadi Mhanna from Gaza, um, who started a seed bank. Hanadi's seed bank includes 
33 kinds of seeds. The project emerged since there was noticeable control over the food system with farmers and farm suffering as they're pushed to use imported genetically modified seeds. And also to mention that the issue with seeds is global in Palestine. The control of the food system obviously is coupled with a military-enforced apartheid. When we're looking at food sovereignty, we can't not talk about land sovereignty also. One of the things I've been blown away with speaking to my sisters in Gaza and my new friend is just how much hope and just how much love and care and reverence there is to the land. You know, one of the things that for example, with Hanadi's seed bank, she was telling me that some of the seeds that she's um, been saving, are, you know, leafy greens, spinach, silver beet, rocket, um, but also a range of wheat and barley seeds and also some medicinal plants and things like za'atar and chamomile and peppermint. Some of you might know that women who are caught foraging for za'atar, particularly in the West Bank, for example, are persecuted. So you can imagine how important it is to save seeds when when things like that become um, not just around preserving culture and food, but also preserving life and picking wild herbs or saving seeds become a really big act of solidarity and activism as well. One of the things that I was really humbled to hear and was the ambition and just the success of of these projects and the energy and the resilience and the hope that everyone I spoke with from Gaza has shown and really thrives to keep going despite the injustices. Thank you very much for sharing your stories and for trusting me with these translations. I hold this with a lot of responsibility. It's been an incredible experience. So thank you very much for trusting me with this. I will leave it here. And I know we've got a question and answer component to the webinar. So I might just, you know, leave some questions to come, come at me if there are more questions about stories so i'll hand over back thanks so much russia um and thank you again for your uh, collaboration and support of this campaign uh so finally uh, uh in this part of the webinar we're going to hear from laurel thomas uh who's representing free palestine melbourne laurel has been uh, a, a long time campaigner for for social justice uh having worked in teaching um, and then joined the Australian branch of the International Campaign to Ban Landmines, uh, which later became Safe Ground. So she's been with working with that group for, for over 20 years uh, as National Secretary and National Coordinator, and then uh, since 2019 has been concentrating on justice for Palestine with Free Palestine Melbourne. So a very warm welcome to you, Laurel. Thank you, Nick. Um, so I'm Laurel Thomas. Um, from Free Palestine Melbourne, and Free Palestine Melbourne was set up as a community organisation in February 2020. So it's a young group. It is dedicated to working towards justice for Palestine through advocacy and activism. We're a diverse group, diverse in age, in background and expertise. And I think I have the dubious pleasure of being probably the joint oldest in the group. And the membership includes both Jews and Palestinians all working towards the same end. Personally, I'm a Quaker, and as such, I'm committed to peace, equality, and social justice. 
My earlier work with Safe Ground aimed to reduce impacts of war, principally in the Asia-Pacific region. War may not have been declared in Palestine, but Palestinians nevertheless suffer an ongoing relentless war on their identity, their home and their families. Working for Palestine is not something that we can do, but something that we must do as a moral imperative. Our group has a local media team monitoring media, both internationally and nationally daily to alert members. Local news is prioritized and actions and letters called for where appropriate. In May, in response to the Israeli aggression in Palestine, Free Palestine Melbourne was instrumental in organizing rallies in the city, which drew huge crowds. We hold a monthly meeting, second Saturday of every month, in person where possible and on Zoom if the need arises. And I'm just going to screen share so that you can actually see our aims, what we aim to do. And we endeavor to educate those Australians whose attitudes to Palestine are often formed on the basis of misinformation published in our local media, a media which alarmingly is much less transparent than that in Israel, which is free to criticize its own government. We try to affect attitudes and actions of both the governing Liberal National Co Coalition and the opposition, whose entrenched pro-Israel stands are second only to that of the US, to raise funds for Palestine, to ease ongoing suffering in the face of violence and oppression, to support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement against the Israeli government, and support and network with other like-minded groups and organizations. And this is, of course, why we're happy to be represented today as part of the global movement for justice and peace in Palestine. Friday, October 15th, was the UN International Day of Rural Women, highlighting and honouring the role that the women play in food production. They feed and nourish families and communities, physically, psychologically, and emotionally. They raise more diverse crops with little to no waste, and they account for less carbon waste due to their local distribution. Women running micro farms might be small businesses, but they make a big difference providing a sustainable and healthy food source. The UN website says that they raise and process crops and prepare and distribute their products, ensuring that their families and communities are nourished. The theme for the International Day, Rural Women Cultivating Good Food for All, shines a spotlight on the critical role they play in feeding the world. The Israeli siege of Gaza has led to malnutrition and misery and projects such as rebuilding women-owned farms in Gaza of sustain and partners are vital, helping to feed the hungry, but also demonstrating solidarity in the midst of huge indifference and cruelty. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laurel, for that contribution and for the support of Free Palestine Melbourne um, and your network for this campaign. Um, and what you've said there is, is so important to remember on this being World Food Day, that the people who actually feed the world uh, in their great majority are small-scale farmers and the majority of them are women, uh, often in extremely difficult circumstances, uh, such as those we've heard about this evening uh, in Gaza. So important to, to remember that uh, when we talk about these issues. So now I'm going to hand back to Nasser um, to facilitate the second part of our webinar, which is a discussion 
encourage you to contribute any any questions um, that you like in the in the Q and A function, and and please indicate if you'd like a particular speaker or panelist uh, to speak to them. Over to you, Nasser. Thanks so much, Nick. A big thank you to everyone for appearing on our panel. Um, Laurel from Free Palestine, Melbourne, Russia from Betashay, Amy and Susanna from Just Food Collective, Nick from Sustain for everything you guys have done, and of course, uh, Andrew from the Global Gardens of Peace. Wonderful to have you all here and to have so much support uh, in Melbourne, back towards Gaza. To our um, Palestinians, you're awesome. Congratulations. Thank you for everything to you do. Ahmed, you're great, but we're going to push you to the side and congratulate each of our women. Siham and Nirmeen, Fatina, Ala, you're all so fantastic. And the last speaker was Nasha Moshni, who presents the Palestine Remembered program here at 3CR every Saturday morning at 9.30. But if you can help the appeal, which has now been launched, to assist the women farmers in Gaza who have been so devastated by the blockade and the bombings every couple of years. Go to Sustain Gaza in a search engine and it will come up with the appeal for the farmers. So I do hope that you can assist in some way. Thank you. Kofias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kofias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kofia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Last week, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan spoke on the program about the crisis facing Pacific Island nations of climate change. If climate change is not taken seriously by wealthy nations who have the ability to lessen its consequences, which is not available to small island nations. But there is another threat to the Pacific Island nations, their oceans, the potential impacts of deep sea mining which has not been raised at any COP meeting and certainly not in the formal COP26 meeting. In response, the Deep Sea Mining Campaign co-supported a Pacific Talanea. Deep Sea Mining is no answer to the climate crisis session as part of the COP26 People's Summit for Climate Justice. The moderator of the session was Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign there were four speakers from the Cook Islands, Papua New Guinea, Tonga and Fiji. And today, Natalie will summarise the concerns of the people in these countries and actions being taken to halt this threat. Nat, I've been talking with you for a number of years now about deep sea mining and the ultimate demise of nautilus minerals and their 
projects off the northeast coast of PNG. Today we're going to talk about what's happening at the moment, but is it true that COP22 made no mention of deep sea mining? No, um, in terms of the main COP26 you know, sessions with the, the, the sort of governments and leaders, deep sea mining is not on the agenda at all. Um, and that's been a, a real concern, obviously, for our Pacific um, partners, but also our international partners. There were a couple of side events in the main space, like in the, I had different zones. <laughs> I'm like not sure of all the colours, but there was a couple of sessions, one of which um, had Maureen Pinduelli from Pacific Network and Globalisation, so fantastic regional organisation that has been campaigning against deep sea mining for over a decade. Um, and she was joined by Farah from the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition and Vasa from the Oxygen Project. So that was a fantastic session of three very strong women talking to the issue. And so we decided that we it was important for us to be part of the COP26 coalition People Summit for Climate Justice to really put it on the agenda for the climate movement at the very minimal minimum. And actually the, the sessions were part of, there was about four sessions that looked at challenging ex, greenwashing of extractivism. And so we sort of joined with London Mining Network, War on Want, Yes to Life, Noda Mining Network and many others in these four different sessions of which one was the Pacific Talanoa the Pacific conversation on deep sea mining. I'd imagine you wouldn't have had any trouble getting speakers. For our Pacific mm. Talanoa? Yeah. Oh, no, not at all, because Pacific communities that have led this issue for so long, and we have a really amazing kind of movement in the Pacific, really. So the speakers included Dr. Claire Slatter from the Pacific Blue Line Collective, which is a regional kind of movement that's calling for a ban on deep sea mining and she's based in Fiji. Jonathan Metalum, who um, is the coordinator of the Alliance of Sawara Warriors who really spoke to the movement that they've been building for a decade and how they've managed to hold off the world's first deep sea mining project to be given an operating licence and now they're pushed to get all the licences cancelled towards a ban. And then also um, Alana Smith from the Tiyuta Kerera Society in Cook Islands, who have been doing these incredible vaca journeys, traditional journeys on their you know, traditional boats across the different islands in the Cook Islands to talk about deep sea mining and also other issues that, that their oceans been, you know, are facing. And then our final speaker was Tita Kara from Civil Society Forum of Tonga, who is the national coordinator there on deep sea mining, who has been a fierce campaigner on the ground there and yeah, look, it was an amazing session to have these speakers. I just moderated it and to sort of hear what they're doing in their kind of country context, but also how they're working together in a broader movement across the Pacific to make sure that deep sea mining doesn't happen. And for them to speak with a Pacific lens, like the, what the oceans mean to them. And uh, yeah, it was a really successful session. We had about 100 people attend, so... And it's been recorded as well. <laughs> are there different areas of the Pacific that are particularly under threat? Yeah, so for the last um, decade or more, Papua New Guinea and the Bismarck and Solomon Seas, because 
there's licences there in the national waters and the economic exclusive zones of Papua New Guinea. And that's where the Solwara One project, which was the first and only project in the world to be given an operating licence. Fortunately, because of the movement and because the company Nautilus Minerals um, own sort of demise, financial demise, they you know no longer exist, uh, they, they have been able to hold off that mine from starting. But in the Cook Islands, they have a very pro-deep sea mining government and they're looking at mining um, nodules, which is in the deep seas there. And so they have quite a big fight ahead of them to try and shift the public. And, and they are. They are doing that. And then in Tonga, you have a different scenario. You have licences within their national waters, but also Tonga is in, in a... a agreement with Deep Green, which is well, formerly Deep Green, it's now the metals company, and that is to mine in the Clarington-Clifton zone, so that's in international waters. So these miners, these deep sea miners, have made these arrangements, and, and the metals company is one of the most significant ones. So they've got a, these agreements with uh, Nauru, Tonga and Kiribati to mine in our international waters. So the sort of illusion is that money will come back to these Pacific Island nations, but, you know, the research is really showing that's probably not going to be the case at all. Uh, and also for these communities, they say, well, you know, borders have been, lines have been put in the map saying this is our national and international waters, but they're connected across these waters to, you know, from their traditional trading routes and cultural and spiritual um, connection to their oceans. So for them... Whether it's in international waters or whether it's in their national waters, they do not want deep sea mining to happen in um, the South Pacific. I suppose part of the concerns are the unknown of what the impact of deep sea mining could be. Yeah, and those unknowns are coming. You know, there's a little bit, a lot more science now, and one of the major concerns is, well, of course, there is life in the deep sea, despite the deep sea miners saying there isn't. There is much life that we don't know about yet. We know a very small percentage, like maybe 2 to 5% of our deep sea oceans um, in terms of the ecosystems and the life that is there. So we don't have much understanding how important that life is to all the other aspects of the ocean. And life there is slower. So the manganese nodules have taken a million years or so to form. And there are, you know, life forms that live there. And one of the other major concerns is around the um, disturbance of the ocean floor to create these plumes that will have a lot of toxicity, heavy metals in them. And the modelling that's coming out is showing that these plumes will travel far and wide. And in that international area of the Carrington-Clipperton zone, the modelling showing that those plumes will travel as far as to into Kiribati's national waters and into Hawaii's national waters. So this, you know, this is what the concern is, is that there's no precautionary principle in terms of what's happening. There's actually, at the International Seabed Authority that's handing out these licences, there's no regulations in place currently anyway. Um, and so it's, it's like totally out of sight. <laughs> what, if they go ahead, what will happen? We're not really going to know. And it's going to be very hard to regulate and monitor. And our oceans are already under such massive threat with climate change and pollution and, you know, fish, it, it's been fished out. So we just see this as not a necessary way to go, even though the deep sea miners are trying to push this as some sort of climate, answer to climate action and the climate crisis. We say, no, it isn't at all, because we don't need to go and mine our deep seas to 
try and shift ourselves to a much better and, and more sustainable way of living on this planet. So is it acknowledged that the International Seabed Authority is just like a paper tiger? Look, the concern for us with the International Seabed Authority is the corporate capture of, of that space. There are governments, you know, there, there's, there's obviously governments involved in that and there are some governments that are, are concerned about how quickly this has been pushed ahead, including some of the African governments, I think even some of the Latin American governments. And, and of course, here in the Pacific, Fiji has come out strongly against deep sea mining um, and, and also Vanuatu and PNG to some extent. And so there is sort of a movement to, to really try and get some of these governments to stand up and speak out and for the very minimum push for a moratorium inside the International Seabed Authority until the science can really prove that this is going to be okay, which I think for many of us, we never can really see this as being okay. But we need to, we need to put the brakes on They've, that Nauru with the metals company have triggered what is called the two-year rule. It's a rule within the ISA, which means that they could start mining within the next two years. So we have pretty much 18 months left to try and stop it from starting. But we have 18 months and we have a very strong movement in the Pacific and also internationally. So we really believe we can. Um, and so we're all action stations are here to really mobilise the general public, but also decision makers across the world that this can't go ahead. I'd imagine it's not just the science, but it's the infrastructure needed for this deep sea mining. We saw the protect, protected issue of this ginormous machine where they showed all the, the photos and the videos of the machine, but we never actually saw the machine properly, did we? Uh, is this the Nautilus machines? Yes. Yeah, the... yeah, well, the Nautilus machines ended up just rusting in Port Moresby, but the machines they want to use in those because there's different types of mining. So they still haven't really developed those machines for mm. the international waters. They have trialed some, and you know, I think from what we can see, they are not very successful because we're talking about great depths and great pressure. So there's all these different points in their mining operation, which is really like dredging the sea the sea floor where there could be um, issues obviously the plumes but also the riser pipe that's going to take the ore up to the boat could easily break um, and then there's the waste from the boat itself so you know you've got these different areas of points of areas of really major concern that could go drastically wrong and the ocean moves and we're talking about these great depths and whilst yeah they may go well the oil industry has done this this is still a whole different type of mining and we already have seen the devastating impacts from oil, you know, offshore oil mining. So, you know, is this something we really want to add to, a, to the ocean? But just the fact that these communities in many countries in the Pacific rely so heavily, well, they have to, they have mm. to rely on the Pacific for their, or their, their well-being, for their survival. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. So they have their traditional fisheries. But also economically, their major fisheries as well is very important to them economically. So fisheries is another big one, and, and more and more the fisheries, generally fisheries are coming out against it. So we know as an industry, they're one of the industries, as much as they've got their own issues, <laughs> the big fisheries, they are one of the industries that are realising this will impact them for sure. So, um, yeah, so there's different, you know, obviously different industries and and like tourism particularly in the pacific is another big one that would be impacted by this 
where is the comp campaign at the moment? Well, it has many very different arms, depending on where you're where you are, whether you're in PNG or whether you're looking regionally in the Pacific or whether you're looking internationally. So, but we do collaborate across those different areas, and there are certain some areas which are pushing for a moratorium, like in the ISA, because that is where you know they need to push that. And then, of course, in the Pacific, they're calling for a ban. But we still work across our different, I guess you know, regions internationally and also in the Pacific and also in the local context. Priority is actually amplifying those on the front lines because they actually are the ones fighting it the most. So our international colleagues are very aware of that now, which is really fantastic. But yeah, there's an International Seabed Authority meeting coming up in December. So there's a lot of action and push going around that, I guess, in terms of making sure that nothing is pushed ahead. You know, COVID, the pandemic in terms of all forms of extractivism have has allowed an opening for things to be pushed ahead while we've been sort of dealing with the pandemic. So deep sea mining to no different in terms of that two rule two year rule being triggered. So yeah, we still have a lot of work to do. And I think it's just continually building it, building our allies finding, you know, getting fisheries on board, we have the EU Commission on board, and just getting more and more people to really to stand up. There's, a, there's like 600 scientists that have signed a letter. And, yeah, it's just sort of amplifying that as much as we can so we can hold this off before it ever gets started. And when you think of onshore mining, it's got a history of hundreds and hundreds of years. With deep sea mining, there's no experience of anybody, really. Not of deep sea mining, no experience at all. It's yeah. a completely new industry. And that, of course, is our concern because the fact that we don't really know what... We have very little understanding of the life forms and ecosystems that live down there and how they relate to the rest of the ocean, let alone to the broader planet. Um, and this is why we're saying this just shouldn't happen. Uh, you know, we've seen what's happened in terrestrial mining, land-based mining, and one thing is with they cut open a mountain, at least we can actually see <laughs> the devastation. We, there's still um, hidden devastation in that as well, but you can see it. How are we ever going to see what happens in the deep sea 6,000 metres down? You know, And so it's, it's a real concern for us that this should never go ahead. Do you have much um, hope for the conference in December? Well, I, I have a lot of faith and hope in our international colleagues who um, work in that space, in the high-level spaces. I think they have been doing this for uh, almost a decade. And so they have some pretty good strategies of how to build allies within that space. That's the most important thing. So lobbying particular governments to hold a, to stand strong, and they already are. So, yeah, I do believe that they can you know, uh, at least hold off to some point. So, yeah, I guess we we just have to see how it goes. <laughs> Another issue I'd like you to talk about for a few moments is Pega Hill. I remember speaking with you and one of the residents up to a decade ago concerning the forced relocation of the people from mm. there and they were told that they were going to have a better life where we're going to move you to. But a new report by Aid Watch and Jubilee Australia shows that that is not the case at all. 
No. So the Parker Hill community, you know, were went through some forcible evictions um, in the last one being in 2012. So it is sort of over a decade ago. But since then, there has been a feature documentary film and Aid Watch and Jubilee have spent the last sort of four or five years going back and forth and on the ground to sort of really understand what's happened to that community. What's really amazing about that community, despite the forced evictions and the displacement, is this, that they've somehow kept relationship with each other despite being spread out, and there still is very strong leadership. And that's why in 2018 we decided to work collaboratively with the community to do some social mapping, and that's what's the result of this report, um, House Bugger Up Heavy Come Up. And in, in that's in, in top person, and it's the voices from the aftermath of community evictions and displacement at Parga Hill. And so the methodology of this report was a participatory research. I personally was in PNG and worked with, obviously we went through a whole process with the leaders and then went through some creative sort of training with some of the Parga Hill youth to actually go out and do the mapping themselves. So that was collecting the interviews. And then Aidwatch and Jubilee uh, were able to look at all the data and then kind of collaboratively work on a, a report bringing back the story. So the whole idea of the social mapping was what was life like before at Parga Hill and what was life like after they'd been evicted. And why were they shifted? The, they're a settlement. They were originally, um, they're one of the oldest settlements in Port Moresby, which is the main, you know, biggest town of PNG. And they were brought in four generations ago to help, like as indentured labour, really. And in that time, they all came from different provinces. They were different language groups. They built a, a, a really lovely community that was safe. And they were never rich. It was still poor, but they had houses. They had a school. They had a church. They had sanitation. They had water. They had their gardens. And they were right on the ocean. So the mothers were able to have a small market where they sold fish. So everyone had food and and the kids were able to go to school. And there were quite a few people in that community who had formal employment. Joe Moses, who was one of the community leaders, was a lecturer at the university there. So they they were in harmony. They had a law and order committee. They had women's committee. They had youth. You know, they, they had a lot going on. And um, a lot of people recognise this community as an example community of, of a settlement that was safe. And in a place in Port Moresby where, you know, it's notoriously known for quite high rates of violence, to have a settlement that was safe is great. And unfortunately, Australian company came in and, and saw this place by the ocean and thought we were going to build a big marina. So it was all about some exclusive development in a city where really they should have been putting money towards um, developing, you know, some really good urban settlements or urban um, suburbs, if you want to call it that. But instead, they thought, well, let's build a marina. And, and also in conjunction with that, in the end of 2019, APEC was held in PNG and there was a big building that was created just near Parker Hill. So it was all about cleaning out that part of Parker Hill to make it look desirable to um, government leaders who are coming to the APEC. And also, yeah, it's kind of nuts, really. That's the only way I can say, you know, is to put money like that into a development in a place like Port Moresby where people don't have enough access to health and education is crazy. 
Um, and so this this community that was really functioning was forcibly di- displaced and evicted, despite going through the courts and really fighting to stay. In the end, they were removed. What are you hoping will come out of this new report? Mm, well, so this report looks at the different... So when we first went there um, and met with the leaders, it was really for us to try and everyone. And what were some people who took a relocation package, which went to eight relocation package, was seen as world-class. Um, and in the report, it really makes it very clear it was not world-class. It was actually really quite horrible. And then um, a portion of the community were dumped in another area called Gerahu, where they were just dumped with nothing. They actually had to go back and collect all their all the demolished housing you know, materials and go back and sort of build some makeshift housing. And then the rest were either dispersed through other settlements, like living with family in probably crowded conditions, or they were living on the street. So that's kind of what the report identified. And what we looked at was, what is life like after? What, do they have access to water? Do they have the access to basic needs water and shelter and sanitation and you know just health and so what the report showed was that you know safety was a real issue so 95% of the people interviewed felt they weren't safe and, and that meant safe as in not safe in their bodily safe but also not safe in, in secure tenure of being able to live somewhere and know that that could live there permanently so that was that was a big part of this report about 94% felt they didn't have access to appropriate sanitation and about 90% didn't feel they didn't have access to electricity and about 60% didn't feel like they had access to appropriate water resources. So many had to walk quite big distances to access water. And so by we're showing the story of what life was like before and after, we, we kind of came up with these recommendations and one was around security of tenure. So recommending that the National Capital District Commission, along with the land departments, work together with customary owners of where some of the Pākehu community had been displaced to, to allocate security of tenure for them. And also that wherever they're based, that infrastructure is put in, that you know there's appropriate running water, electricity, sewerage and sanitation. And also to you know just continuously assist this dispersed community. And another um, aspect was compensation. So a lot of Parker Hill community had houses. They had permanent and semi-permanent houses, and they were actually well-structured houses. So, you know, they are asking for compensation for the houses that they lost. And so these are some of the recommendations. And I know I spoke to one of the community leaders yesterday. They are actually meeting with the National Capital District Commission, so the NCDC. NCDC to uh, really go through this report and I guess hopefully this is an opportunity for conversation and an actual action forward that the Pākehu community gets some form of justice for what they've lost. And I'd imagine sooner rather than later. Well, that's what the report asks for, of course. Yeah, and I think in part part of that is, is, is a bit of a recommendation in terms of you know, our Australian government um, improving oversight and monitoring and access to justice in Australia for communities who are harmed by Australian corporations' operations overseas. So there's no there's no way for them to access any sort of justice here because it was an Australian company. And, yeah, as Curtin Brothers and the Pākehu Development Company both have Australian ties. 
So, yeah, I guess that's also another recommendation in terms of the work we need to do here is sort of human rights due diligence around our Australian corporations operating overseas. And it's also good to keep an eye on these companies and government departments, even though it's over 10 years since. Yes, yes. Yeah, oh, definitely. Look, I think the, when, we, when we sat down and we decided to do this research with the community, we realised they'd already um, exhausted any legal avenues really to get compensation. And I said, you know, it's really sad to say, but you may never get justice, the real justice that you deserve. But what your story can do is your story can stay alive and it can become a cautionary tale for other settlements who are already facing this. So in part of our research, we'd go, and it's not in this, but part of the work we did, we went to Medang province and met with some of the youth there who had already gone through similar evictions and are about to go through another set of evictions <laughs> to where they're being displaced to. So this is an ongoing issue. It's only going to become bigger in PNG as population um, increases, as the city areas or the urban areas want to develop more. And really what ha has to happen is the decision makers need to start putting policies in place about effective and fair urban planning that means that people are going to get housed and they're going to get access to water and, and you know, all the basic necessities that they need. And so we hope that this report will kind of really help towards that into the future. But I'm sure there's a long journey still to be made. But the target will some sort of justice from, you know, this research and, and you know, just to honour them that they are very much the drivers of this research We've just sort of supported it and helped kind of analyse the data to pull it together into a report. But, yeah, we, we really hope that there's some form of justice for them going into the future. And many thanks to Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio on digital and online 3CR Radical Radio. I'm speaking once again with human rights advocate Peter Murphy, who led the Investigate PH, a recent three-part investigation by the International Commission on the Extrajudicial Killings, Illegal Arrests, Abductions and Disappearances in the Philippines since 2016, since President Duterte came to power. One of the key findings of that inquiry was the crucial role of President Duterte's Executive Order Number 70, which created the National Task Force to end local communist armed conflict, and retired Lieutenant General Antonio Parlady Jr. was the spokesperson. It has recently been announced that none other than this man, Parlady Jr., is the latest nomination for the presidency in the elections coming up in May next year. Peter, how far back can you go to examine the record of Pallardi Jr. regarding human rights abuses to the present day? And was this nomination unexpected? Well, I think it was unexpected. The nomination of this retired General Pallardi, he only retired a couple of months ago, um, he was very outspoken in his role it, as the um, he was the Southern Luzon Command of the um, Army, and he was the spokesperson for the National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict, which is a really big mouthful. But uh, it, it really he indulged himself terribly in that role 
with very outrageous uh, red tagging of all sorts of a wide range of people, including, you know, Miss Universe people. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's an extremist and he is associated with uh, executions of political dissenters, closures of uh, LUMAD schools in Mindanao. To have him as a candidate is scary enough, but the fact that he nominated is a sort of a fracturing of the group of authoritarian people around the current president, Duterte. So uh, it's also a sort of sign of uh, chaos on, on their side of politics. So not only do we have General Palade as a, as a candidate, we have uh, the, the son of the former dictator Marcos as a, as a candidate. We have uh, a candidate pushed by um, Duterte, his sort of sidekick really, uh, his name is Go, and uh, we have um, Manny Pacquiao, the boxing champion, is also a candidate for the presidency. You know, it's quite uh, a big field on that side of uh, politics in the Philippines. And on, on the more sort of uh, traditional uh, elite politics side, but definitely a more peaceful approach to politics, uh, is Lenny Robredo, who's the current vice president. Uh, and she's the only candidate really on that side of the equation in the Philippines at the moment. So um, it's it's sort of uh, shaping up as a complicated uh, election. And I think the current president Duterte is is now freaking out uh, because you know his own plan didn't work out. He wanted to have I think his daughter running for president and uh, Marcos running as her, her vice presidential candidate, which is bad enough, of course. But um, he failed to engineer that because I think his daughter took too long to say definitely what she wanted to do. And uh, she was sort of stuck in this vice presidential uh, nomination frame. And on the other hand, Marcos had months and months where he was saying he wanted to be president and he, he was in the end unable to and didn't want to switch. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's pretty complicated and uh, Duterte is facing a problem now that maximum, you know, he would be in the Senate himself and his daughter might be the vice president, but none of them would be in the palace. And so he's, I think, quite worried about the protection of himself and his family in the next presidency. Is this a first to have such a chaos or is it that sort of thing happens in Philippines politics? It does happen, but... I think it's it's unusual to have this particular combination. Like uh, there might be five candidates running for the president or six, but there's really usually only two that really count, and people know that from early on. So uh, this time, having the general turn up especially is, to me, a sign that uh, at the extreme end of the military, there's uh, a, a concern that their sort of agenda is some, which is very extreme and repressive, is going to be somehow uh, diluted or um, just you know pushed pushed aside by a new figure. So uh, they they're putting their own in with this uh, Palade uh, nomination. I don't think we should underestimate him, even though he wasn't seen as a as a potential. Actually, I left out another one, uh, uh, Senator Laxon, Panfilo Laxon, is is also from a he was a, the chief of police in the 1990s, 
Um, he's associated with a lot of uh, rubbing out of people um, in in that period, and you know, again, another hard hard-headed militarist. And he's also running for the presidency. So you see, they're splitting up their vote, but there's an anxiety in, in, in the military side of the equation about the um, continuity of the current program, which this is the current program which has drawn, you know, international opprobrium on the on the Philippines, uh, which has drawn uh, the International Criminal Court into an investigation of uh, police and military and the president. So, um, you know, it's it's uh, a sign, I think, that um, this end of the spectrum in, in terms of uh, power in the Philippines wants to maintain that view. And I, <clears throat> I think it's worth saying how dangerous this looks, that uh, if if that uh, group, even if Duterte himself, uh, coming up to the May election next year, feels that it's out of control, that, that they can't guarantee, you know, their strategy for the future, there is a plan already called uh, NOEL, N-O-E-L. Sounds like Christmas, but it's just short for no elections. That is, there would be a coup d'etat and a military government again. Yeah. So... You know, that's that's the sort of, our, you know, range of possibilities. And I think uh, it's worth really saying that's a possibility now that we see this crazy sort of uh, infighting in that uh, militaristic authoritarian uh, side of politics in the Philippines. Well, is there another end to the spectrum or even centre? Well, I think uh, Lenny Robredo, represents the traditional politics i find it hard to say it's uh, progressive because you know the the very very serious social and economic problems of philippine society really stem from this kind of politics um the uh, mass protest movement against that sort of politics has led to this you know first of all the marcos dictatorship and and now this duterte authoritarianism uh, and mass murder, really. So uh, is it really an alternative? Well, I think in the short term, it's it's the better option available to the Filipino people. But already, candidate Robredo is, is indicating a sort of a retreat from, you know, even mild reforms um, into a, a safe zone. I think she's reached out to the US uh, embassy to talk about the future and... Uh, I think their influence is already showing up in that, say, two weeks ago. She said that uh, in, if she was president, she would abolish this national task force to end local communist armed conflict. And now, like last week, she started to say, no, she would keep it and try to reform it. Well, I think uh, that's, that's an, you know, a serious you know, backtrack, a really serious one since this big acronym is involved in in a intense surveillance on indigenous people, on trade unionists and other, you know, church-based uh, human rights advocates and executing them. So, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing to be reformed there. They should be arrested themselves. And, you know, I think the idea that somehow this will continue is, is you know, it's a big backtrack and a big worry. But is there ever been a free and fair election in the Philippines? Not in my memory. Uh, I think uh, even <clears throat> even the one back way back in 1986, when um, Corazon Aquino did win, 
you know, there was intense fighting uh, over the ballot boxes. Perhaps you could say that the, the really massive mobilisation of the Aquino uh, camp or the anti-Marcos camp for that election meant that there was less cheating. But, yes, I, I think I've seen, you know, really terrible, terrible things happen, say, under uh, Macabagal Arroyo, in 2004, there was a notorious, uh, huge, you know, millions of votes cast in obscure provinces in Mindanao, which won the election for her and and her famous phone phone call to the Electoral Commissioner, hello, Garci, <laughs> what, what can you do for me? So uh, there's that. And, and even this one where uh, Rodrigo Duterte won in 2016, he was cheated against. And uh, I think... Uh, he, you know, he had such a landslide that even the cheating was miscalculated. It wasn't enough. So um, now they have, um, you know, computerised counting of the votes. And at, at that at that last election, the cheating happened when they just suspended the the computer count for a few hours, and a different thing came out, but not enough. So um, I, I suspect that now Duterte's people are in charge of the elections in machinery. You know, we'll see something similar happen. But as you can see, it's hard. It's going to be hard for them to know what to do, given the range of candidates on their side. So, yeah, I think, you know, again, to recap, there is all, seems to be always cheating in the Philippines, but it doesn't necessarily produce the result that was intended by the cheaters. You mentioned the ICC investigation into human rights abuses. It's been suspended. Why? Well, the, it seems that on the 10th of November, the Philippines ambassador to the Netherlands wrote a letter to the ICC uh, prosecutor requesting the stopping of the investigation on the grounds that uh, the Philippines uh, judiciary was doing the job and there was or no need for uh, international court to be doing it. And in any case, the police uh, killed those uh, thousands of people in the anti-drug operations in self-defence. So um, what's extraordinary is that um, the very same case had been put, you know, all through these last years um, and the previous prosecutor who, who stepped down in June, she, um, you know, found that it was necessary to have this investigation. So there's nothing new happened between June and, and November except the investigation began. And so I think that it's unfortunate that the uh, ICC prosecutor suspended. He didn't cancel the investigation. He suspended it to consider, you know, the views put by the Philippine government. So, uh, yes, there's, there's a lot of outrage about this uh, feelings uh, and uh, quite a lot of uh, protests being sent to the ICC asking them to reverse that decision as soon as possible. Is that a, an unusual thing for the ICC to suspend because the, the government under question writes to them and says, you know, we're doing this, just we don't need yeah. an investigation? Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the first time it's happened. Most of the most of the cases that the ICC has dealt with have been in relation to Africa and uh, different countries in Africa with um, really, you know, brutal uh, dictators, and um, this never happened. Now the ICC has taken some is making moves in relation to the military junta in Myanmar, and they they haven't suspended anything, even though the the 
government in Myanmar, you know, protested about it. And um, it's taken a few months in the Philippines, you know, for the Philippines government to try this on. Uh, so I, I do think it's a bit of a, a problem that the ICC has, has, has reacted to that request in this way. And of course, there's no timeline for the suspension? No. No, I think, well, no, there is no specific timeline, but the prosecutor said that he's going to consider the scope of the request from the Philippines. So what does that mean? You know, it's a, again, a sort of a obscure word, um, but I think it means that the prosecutor is going to decide this issue, you know, in, in his own good time. And uh, I, I don't think it would take long one way or the other. So I'm just hoping that um, we, by mobilising a lot of different voices around the world on this, uh, to speak to the prosecutor, that we we can get the right decision, that the investigation should continue. Could there be pressure coming from other areas as well as um, the Philippines government? You know, it's, it's opaque, uh, Jan. I think, yes, the answer to this would be yes, that, uh, you know, the... Um, you know, people like the prosecutor. This, in this particular case, he's a, you know, very eminent QC from the UK. He he would have a, you know, a, a lot of people that he talks to in in his normal life, uh, and it's uh, easily possible that, you know, the views of the British government or the US government will have been conveyed to him by, uh, you know, obscure channels. And, and and even other people in the uh, ICC might have been spoken to. But, of course, you know, the judicial body like the ICC is meant to be independent and to operate according to the law. You know, it's not a political uh, operation. It's a judicial operation. So, you know, that's, that's the big worry with this sort of thing. And, you know, in the past, the uh, ICC has come under a lot of criticism for being very partial. You know, it's definitely throughout the poor countries of the world, it's just seen as a rich country's operation, you know, that it only ever prosecuted black people from Africa. So by expanding its uh, its uh, actions to, you know, Myanmar and now the Philippines, that was actually building the credibility of ICC, you know. And so this this little move is a, 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 set, a setback, I think, for the credibility of the ICC. You could easily think of a few first world countries that they should be investigating. Yes, this test, you know, that uh, the, the national jurisdiction fails to address a crime against humanity or a war crime, you know, is, it, it would really catch a lot of more people than the ICC has so far. But, um, you know, there's, there's so many impediments and so much resistance to doing that. For instance, you know, the ICC was only formed around the time of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, and um, and then there was a, a, a statement very early in the piece that there will be no investigation of U.S. Uh, people in relation to the invasion of Iraq. So, you know, that that immediately politicised the the court at its inception. Now it's a very damaging thing, but. You know, that's that's what's happened. So, you know, coming back to our concerns and the Philippines, we, you know, really are very, very happy that the ICC did in, uh, make an assessment 
It took them years to do it about the war on drugs and, and other complaints brought to them. And uh, it was really brilliant that uh, the previous prosecutor in the end was able to recommend this investigation and that their pre-trial chamber agreed and, and authorised the investigation. So, you know, that's all to the good and uh, I, and it's already had its impact, you know, politically speaking, uh, and on the Philippines. And uh, I think it's been good for the global community. But, you know, by doing this little suspension, it's not little really, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a degrading the situation again. So, you know, again, I, I think we just have to keep our focus on the fact that there's been a really massive amount of evidence of crime against humanity in the Philippines. And we want the court to fulfil its own mandate and, and pursue it. The third issue I'd like you to talk about is the fifth anniversary of the Marcos reburial in the National Heroes Cemetery. Yes. Who decided he was a hero? Uh, Rodrigo Duterte. As soon after he was elected president, he announced he would be burying Marcos uh, in the National Heroes Cemetery. You know, five years ago, you know, it's 2016, November, he did it within a few months of becoming president. He did do it. That was a very, you know, it coincided with the clear brutality and, and criminality of the war on drugs. And um, it was at a time when, you know, there was a, a, a peace negotiation going on between the Duterte government and the National Democratic Front. So there were mixed messages, but I think uh, at the time, pretty well everybody in the Philippines who had a progressive bone in their body knew that, you know, this was a sort of deadly sign about the character of the Duterte government. And you, you, you just have to look back on it that um, Duterte, this Rodrigo Duterte, his father was a minister in the government of uh, President Marcos or dictator Marcos. And that uh, Duterte himself grew up with uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the current Bong Bong Marcos and candidate for president. So they, their families were close and uh, Duterte has clearly always had uh, support from the Marcoses and uh, that is in terms of money. You know, the Marcos family has got billions of dollars that was plundered from the country during the dictatorship and um, they are using it, of course, politically to hold on to uh, some status and power, protect themselves from further prosecution, etc. And also to advance their political ambitions again. And that's why, you know, the prospect of uh, Marcos's son becoming the president, that would be, you know, absolutely clear, I think, to all Filipino people that in the end, you know, the, the dictatorship has come back. And uh, I think the international community would be really stunned. Most people in the international community still just have a memory of the EDSA uprising and the presidency of uh, Benigno Aquino's wife, Corazon Aquino, and that everything's cool in the Philippines. Well, that'll be gone. That'll be gone if this happens. So, um, yeah, I think that this time, the fifth anniversary was chosen as a protests in the Philippines by the democratic side of politics to contribute to the uh, national debate that's leading into the elections and to you know highlight the danger of a return to the Marcos uh, period, which was so, so deeply damaging to just, the Philippine society. 
Just wondering, Peter, who's in that hero cemetery with him? Well, I, I'm not uh, really clear myself, but I think you'll find there are people who, you know, former presidents. Uh, there will be people who were uh, fighters in World War II against the Japanese occupation. And, yeah, I, I think I think that's the, com the main combination you'll find. This will be the last time I'll be speaking to you this year, Peter. So it's been a very busy week, a very busy year for you and your friends all around the world. Yes, I, I can't believe how intense it's been, you know, that we've been living in lockdown a lot of the year, but uh, the, the intensity of the work on human rights in the Philippines has been really amazing. And, uh, you know, there's been um, a real building build-up, I think, of the campaign capacity on this issue in the international community. I don't know what the next year will bring. Uh, I think it will be a very dramatic year in 2022 as well. And uh, I think, you know, the Philippines society is, is not the only deeply troubled society in the world, but it is one of the, the really difficult uh, societies and people are really having a, a very hard time coping with the stresses and the repression. You know, we, I hope that... Uh, whatever we're managing to do with the Philippines is also helping people all around the world who are facing similar uh, threats and, and crises. And, you know, that it helps um, people in the rich countries like Australia to, you know, recognise our engagement, you know, that we, we are in, implicated in all of this and that we can change it for the better. Okay. okay. Talk to you next year. Okay, good luck. Thank you very much for everything, Jan. Bye. Bye. Human rights activist extraordinaire, Peter Murphy. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.